0: If I were to ask you, are you a Christian? And you said to me, yes, I'm a Christian. What would you mean by that word, Christian? If I were to ask you, are you a Christian, and you said, yes, I'm a Christian, what would you mean? What would you mean by using that word, Christian? You might say, well, I mean, I'm a Christ follower. I would say, amen. What do you mean by Christ follower? What is a Christ follower? What does it mean to follow Christ? If I asked you to double click on that word Christian, what would drop down? What kind of content, ideas, images, truths, words would you use to explain that word? Christian. Maybe you'd you'd start to say something like, well, I'm trying my best to live a good life. You know, I used to do a lot of bad stuff, and now I'm just trying to do some good stuff and clean up my life and, you know, be kind and generous, go to church again. Maybe you would mean something like, well, I know that I'm going to heaven now because of Jesus. I'd say amen. Maybe you'd mean something like, Well, I'm a conservative. I'm a conservative in my values and my politics. You know, I have certain views on education and the economy, etc. Maybe you'd mean something like, well, I believe that God promises to bless me and to prosper me. If I obey Him, He will make me successful just as long as I have enough faith in Him. What would you mean, friends, seriously think, what would you mean, and I may do this after church. I don't know. <laughs> if, like no one's going to talk to me in the four-year after church now. But if I said, what you're a Christian, okay, what do you mean? What do you mean? You just said you're a Christian. What is that? What does that mean? What do you mean? by using that word Christian. Well, we're studying the letter of 1 John, and in this study already we've noted i've noted that john is writing to churches probably around the area of ephesus this is on the west side of modern day turkey he's writing to a bunch of churches to help them know that they are indeed true christians he tells us exactly why i wrote this letter first john 5:13 i write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of god so that you may know that you have eternal life. He wants these churches to know that they are saved, that they are in the faith, that they do have eternal life. He wants to help them to discern the messages of false teachers that were going around these churches, hindering people's faith. He mentions them in chapter 2, verse 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So people are trying to deceive the churches. So John writes to the churches to encourage the churches in the truth, that they do know God, that they have eternal life. The way he does that, as I've said several times now, and I'll keep saying this because it's all over the letter, he gives them three tests throughout the letter, the doctrinal test, the moral test, the relational test. In chapter 1, he gave them the moral test. Verse 6, for example, if we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Chapter 2, he transitions to the relational test. Chapter 2, verse 9, we saw a couple weeks ago, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. So he's saying already in, in these beginning verses of the chapter, he's saying that if you claim to know God, but ignore holiness and moral purity, your claim is empty. If you claim to know God, but have a hateful or indifferent attitude to the church, to brothers and sisters in Christ, then your claim to know God is empty. He's saying that those who have the light of God living in them will love the things that God loves and love the people of God. Now, these tests are not meant to make all of us doubt our salvation. They are, I hope, useful in helping you discern whether you are a Christian or not. I don't mean to suppose that everyone in this room is a Christian right now. I don't know that. But the reason John writes these words is to help these, these churches discern the truth from the false messages of these false teachers. These tests are mainly to use against the false teachers. He's not trying to mainly trip up the churches. He wants these churches to see the falseness of the false teachers. He wants to protect and encourage their faith. He's not writing to make Christians doubt or second guess their faith. He's actually writing to encourage the Christians, not to discourage these Christians, to confirm the genuineness of their faith. So that's what he's doing in the letter as a whole. That's what he's already been doing in chapter 1 and chapter 2. But then we get to this really strange passage in chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, and John seems to abruptly shift gears and start talking about something that seems totally unrelated to the moral or relational or even doctrinal tests that I've mentioned. I want you to look at these verses, and then we'll jump into them. John 2, 1 John 2, 12 through 14. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. What's John doing here? He's moved from the moral test to relational test. And then all of a sudden he's talking about children, fathers, and young men. Children, fathers, and young men. What is he doing? It's actually quite simple. And it took me a bit to a time to figure this out, but really he's just doing a, a short little excursus to encourage the churches. He's still going to keep giving them moral, relational, and doctrinal tests as the letter goes on, but it's almost like towards the beginning he realizes that some of the things he's been saying are hard things, hard sayings, that could create lots of doubt within true believers. Like, oh, I don't know, do I really hate my brother? Do I really love my brother? Do I really... You know, obey God or I don't know. Am I really a Christian? He understands as a good pastor, as a wise, very old pastor at this point, that these hard things he's saying may may be discouraging the people of God. So he pauses for these three verses and reminds these churches who they are. All he's doing here is reminding the churches of the blessings they have as children of God. That's what he's doing. He's reminding them of their blessings. And the blessings include the forgiveness of sins, knowing the Father, knowing the Son, and being strong in overcoming the evil one. He doesn't want his readers or us to have the impression that he thinks they're in the darkness and that they're false and that they're not saved. He wants to encourage them. He doesn't want them to doubt the genuineness of their faith. So he says, look, these are the blessings you have. Forgiveness knowing the Father and the Son, being strong, overcoming the evil one. So, his digression in these verses is to increase their confidence as true Christians. It's also to prepare them for the exhortation of 15 through 17. Next week we'll see this command, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So lest they think that he's talking about them... He wants to pause and encourage them with these reminders. The main point of this text and therefore this sermon is that true Christians are encouraged by the truth. True Christians are encouraged by the truth. So as I get, as I get to preaching here in the next, I don't know, 45, 55 minutes, we'll see what happens. Um, as you hear the truths that John lays out here, If you're a Christian, it'll encourage you, it'll strengthen you. You'll exhale, there'll be relief, joy, thanksgiving. If you're not yet a Christian, you may start to feel or think, oh, I want that, oh, I wish that was mine, oh, I need that. And the good news is you can have it today. All these blessings I'm about to talk about can be yours today, simply by trusting in Christ So, the main point of this text is that true Christians are encouraged by the truth. True Christians are encouraged by the truth. Here's what I want to do. I want to do three things. This is kind of a basic hermeneutical approach to studying the Bible. You can do this every time you open your Bible. I want to do three questions and make those the three points of my sermon. What does this text say? What does it mean? And then what does it mean for us? What does it say? What does it mean And what does it mean for us? So I'm going to talk about the structure of the verses first and then discuss what they mean. That'll be the bulk of the sermon. And then draw one main application at the end. Let me read these verses again and then we'll talk about how they're structured. 1 John 2, 12-14 I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His namesake. Number one, what is John saying? What does this text say? Well, some think that John is dividing up the churches into three categories of spiritual maturity, the children, the fathers, and the young men. I don't think that's what he's doing. I think he's doing something more basic, and for several reasons. Let me give you those now. First, I think that he's... The first reason I don't think he's... He's dividing the churches up into levels or groups of spiritual maturities because his repeated emphasis on Christians loving one another in this letter would, I think, be hindered if he were teaching that there are three categories of people in the church. Undoubtedly, there are some people who are more spiritually mature than others. That's just how it is. Just like there are some people who are mature, just more mature in life than others. We know that. We understand that. But I don't think that John is trying to parse that out and make this kind of an official teaching by dividing the church into three groups. I think that would undermine his command, his repeated command for Christians to love one another. In other words, because our sinful tendency is to always be comparing and competing, you may even be doing that this morning comparing and competing with one another instead of loving one another, it wouldn't seem wise for John to start separating the church into three groups because then we'd always be wondering which group we're in in relation to other people and what, other, what group other people are in relates relate to us. The temptation would be to boast because we're in this group rather than that group or to feel lots of shame because we're in this group rather than that group. It's hard to love people that you're always comparing yourself to. So I don't think that's what John's doing here. Second, I don't think he's dividing the church up in three groups because if he were doing that, you'd expect the order in the text to go like this, children, young men, fathers. Children, young men, fathers. You see the ascending order. Or you'd expect it to go fathers, young men, children. Descending order. But it doesn't do that. He says... Children, fathers, young men. Children, fathers, young men. The groups aren't in ascending or descending order suggesting that John isn't intending to split them up like that. Third, the fact that he begins each cycle, verse 12, with little children, then verse 13, end of 13, children strongly suggests that he's talking to the entire church because throughout the letter, he uses those terms to refer to the whole church. This, I think, is the strongest reason. For example, 2-1, chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, 2-18, children, 2-28, and now little children. I could give several more examples. John repeatedly addresses all of his readers as children, so it seems unlikely that here, all of a sudden, in chapter 2, 12, and 13, that he would start addressing only some of them as children, or that he would start using that word in a new way, that he would start using the, the word children to mean something like infants in Christ, or newborn Christians, or the most spiritually immature. He always uses children to refer to the whole church. So I think here he's referring to the whole church. Number four. Last reason, the things John writes about each group apply to all Christians, not just some Christians. For example, verse 13, all Christians have their sins forgiven. All Christians know the Father. 14, all Christians have overcome the evil one. Yes, there are reasons that I'll get to why John applies these specific things to these specific people, but he's not saying that they only apply to those people. That would, that would just be, under, that would be undermining the truths of the gospel to say that only little children or only the most spiritually immature have their sins forgiven. We know that's obviously not true. Or that only the mature know, the, know God who is from the beginning. Or only young men have overcome the evil one. All of those things apply to all people, all Christians within the church. Therefore, it seems better to say that John is writing to all Christians and then dividing them up into two groups, fathers and young men, or older and younger believers. So little children, verse 12, fathers, 13, old believers, older believers, young men, younger believers, verse 13 again, children, all the church, fathers, older believers, young men, Younger believers, it seems better to suggest and to think that this passage is for the whole church and that John does indeed have groups in mind, but that the groups he has in mind have nothing to do with spiritual maturity, only to do with age. Now, quick point on age. I don't know if you're an older or younger believer. I'm going to let you decide what you are. So postmodern of me. You decide your truth. Yeah, I could probably, some of you would be pretty obvious <laughs> which one you are, but there's not an age limit or age category given in scripture. It's broad, it's general, it's generic on purpose. There are some of you who are older believers, and there are some of you who are younger believers. I actually, by the way, pray that God would bring more older believers into our church, because as I've been here, our church is kind of flip-flop from older to younger, and we actually could use more fathers and mothers in the faith to help us young men and women. Maybe we should pray for that, right? We We need the whole family of God in the church of God. So I don't know what you are. You decide. But keep in mind as I go through this that all of these things are true for all of us, okay? All right, here we go. Let's get into number two. What does John mean in this text? What does he mean first when he says to the children? We'll start with the children, verse 12, and then again into verse 13. First in verse 12, he says, To the children, I'm writing to you little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. Now he's already said back in chapter 1 verse 9 that forgiveness is for everyone who confesses their sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Contrary to the false teachers, walking in the light doesn't mean that those who do so never sin. But that when they do sin, they don't try to hide it from God. The promise in one nine is that when we don't hide our sins from God, when we tell them to Him, what awaits us is acceptance, not condemnation. Forgiveness and cleansing is for those who agree with God about their sin. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse. And this forgiveness applies to all true believers, not just newborn Christians. So when he says, little children, he's saying, church, I'm writing to you because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. This is really good news. This is meant to encourage us. This isn't the kind of message that you just, do, that you just talk about in evangelism when you're talking to someone who's not a believer yet. This is something every one of us needs to hear right now this morning. Brothers and sisters, your sins are forgiven. We know we're supposed to obey God, but we don't always obey God. We know we shouldn't sin, but we sin anyways, and not like on accident. We do things we shouldn't do and don't do things we should do. We willfully and repeatedly prefer to do things our way rather than God's way. Even though we have the Holy Spirit living within us, we choose to ignore His voice and His promptings and go it alone. And God is understandably displeased by this. And God wouldn't be just and God wouldn't be good if He just stood by while His creatures, not to mention His children, did whatever they wanted, mocking His right to rule them. So because God is just, He has judged our sins. But because He's merciful, as John has already told us, He judged them on Jesus' back, not on ours. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But, it's one of the best words in the Bible right there. But, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation, the wrath absorber. Propitiation means He's like a sponge that soaks up all of God's displeasure towards our sins. He's the wrath absorber, the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for also, also for the sins of the whole world. So, God is just. He did judge our sins, but God is also merciful. So, He judged our sins on Jesus instead of on us. So, now He can be both faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all our unrighteousness. Sin is a debt that must be paid and a stain that must be removed. And it's a debt we can't pay, a stain we can't wash. This is why John says in chapter 1, verse 9, we have to take our problem, our dilemma to God. Our sin is a God-sized problem. We can't fix it. We can't read enough books, get enough education, go to enough church services to fix our sin problem so we have to take the problem to the only person big enough to fix it namely God we have to be honest about the fact that we have sins and then we take them to the only one who can actually do something about them so when I ask you what do you mean by the word christian When I double click on the word Christian and you start to explain what you think it means, if it doesn't include that you've sinned against the holy God who's made you and that in Christ He's fully and freely forgiven you through faith and faith alone, then you haven't quite yet arrived at an accurate definition of Christian. God made us. We've sinned against Him. We owe Him a massive debt that we can't afford. He would be right to collect on that debt at any moment. But instead of collecting on that debt, He transferred that debt to Jesus' account so that through Jesus' perfect life, substitutionary death, and bodily resurrection we can find a full and free cancellation of our sin debt. Some of you may have not yet trusted in Christ and confessed and believed with all your might that you have indeed sinned against the God who made you and that Christ is your only hope. If you haven't yet done that, you want to know more about what that means, come grab me or Jared, raise your hand. Jared's our other pastor or the person you came with. We'd love to talk to you more about what that means, what it means to have your sins forgiven. Is there anything more important than that? Now, many of us in this room have trusted Christ, so just think with me for a moment, brothers and sisters. Again, think just for a moment. Every sin we've ever committed has been forgiven by God. Maybe we should do a little breathing exercise on that one. Just let that sink in. Everything you've ever done, are doing, and will do that is contrary to what God would have you to do was nailed to Jesus' cross so that you can be forgiven. That forgiveness... It's free for you, but it costs Jesus everything, of course. This is what it's getting at in the end of verse 12. Your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. If we have read a whole lot of John Piper, we'd be quick to say, well, that just means for God's glory. Well, yes, of course, we are forgiven for God's glory. But really, I think NIV actually translates it better, on account of His name. In other words, the forgiveness that you have, brother or sister, only happens on account of Jesus' name. Name meaning person. All that he is, all that he's done. Your forgiveness is on the account of Jesus' name. God forgives our sins because of Jesus Christ. God only forgives our sins because of Jesus. This is where the Christian life begins and ends. We should never get tired of singing about this. This is why John begins, I think, his little pep talk to the churches. Like this, by raising the flag of forgiveness above all the other flags of truth that he's going to be waving here, he wants us to know that in Jesus, the, the most pressing problem that we face has been dealt with, finally and fully. Brothers and sisters, little children, your sins are forgiveness because of Jesus. Are forgiven because of Jesus. Even though you're guilty to the core, in Jesus you're innocent and set free. This truth applies to all Christians, no matter their age. Now he says something else to the children. Look next with me down in verse 13. We'll come back to the fathers and the young men. But to the children, end of uh, of verse 13, I write to you, children, because you know the Father. You know the Father. And again, this applies to all Christians, and it's the result of the forgiveness of sins. So first, little children your sins are forgiven. uh, forgiven. What happens when we're justified, we're declared righteous and innocent, our debt is removed. What happens is now we have a relationship with the Father. The sin problem we have has been removed and we're brought into the family of God. Those who are forgiven enter into a family relationship with God and with His people. They move from fearing God as Creator and Judge to enjoying God as Father. Notice it says, children, because you know the Father, not because you know the Judge or know the Creator or know God in some generic sense. You know the Father. You know the Father. The Holy Spirit is then given to believers to make us aware of our filial or intimate family relationship with God, causing us to cry out, as Paul says, Abba, Father, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are indeed children of God. So by telling these churches that they know the Father, He's affirming that their sins are forgiven and that they're in the family of God. He's also affirming the genuineness of their faith because throughout this letter, He says that those who truly know God, those who are truly in the family of God, keep God's commands, love God's people, believe true things about God. So here he's in effect saying, churches, you are doing these things. You are this kind of people because you know the Father. You know the Father. Those false teachers, they don't know the Father. But you know the Father. And your sins are forgiven. So to the children, to the churches he says you have the forgiveness of sins because of Jesus and through Jesus you have a relationship with God now as father next let's move to the fathers lowercase f verse 13 and then again verse 14 I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning then he says the exact same thing Again in 14, I, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. So John moves to the fathers. There's only one other place in the New Testament that refers to believers as fathers. First Timothy five, one. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers. Paul is giving Timothy advice on how to relate to older men in the church. The designation father is clearly referring to older men, those older than Timothy. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. So there's no indication there with Paul to Timothy that he's referring to differing levels of spiritual maturity, rather just different ages. So I think John is doing the same thing here. He's not addressing those who are more spiritually mature, but those who simply are older, those who are more advanced in years. Older men and women, by the way, This is not like John is just talking to the guys, okay? He's talking to the churches. Children in the letter always means all the children, all the children of God. So when he says fathers, mothers, please tune in as well. And I don't know who that is in this room. You know who you are. If you're an older saint, you know who you are. Here's what he says to you. He says that you know him who is from the beginning. What does that mean? What does it mean? To know Him who is from the beginning. Who's the Him? Who's the one that they know? Well, in 1 John, in the Gospel of John, the only person said to be from the beginning is the Word of God, or Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So, knowing Him who is from the, from the beginning is knowing Jesus Christ. John is reminding these churches, specifically the older members of these churches, that they know Jesus if you're an older saint, you may be thinking, that's all you got for me, John? Like, I couldn't get something more exciting like overcome the evil one? Why is John intent on telling these older saints that they know Jesus? Why would, why would old John, John's probably in his 90s, by the way, as he writes this. So why is old John writing to old saints, reminding them to Reminding them that they know Jesus. Well, think of it. If you are advanced in years and you are approaching death, if you have fewer years in front of you than you do behind you, what what would be the thing that you would most want to remember as you near the end of your life? Wouldn't you want to be encouraged that even though death is getting closer and closer, that you still belong to Jesus? At that point, haven't you lived long enough to realize that everything else in this earth, everything else even in your life, has failed to truly satisfy you? To be the rock and refuge that you'd hoped it to be? As you approach death's doorstep, wouldn't you want to hear again and again and again, you know Jesus, you know Jesus, you know Jesus? Why is that so important? Not just for older saints, of course, for all of us, but why is that so important well, look with me quickly. I want us to use chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 to help us understand this a bit. John started this letter by equating Jesus, the word of life, into verse 1, chapter 1, the word of life, with verse 2, the eternal life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So this eternal life that was with the Father and made manifest to us, isn't some impersonal quality of life that comes from God, the Father. But it refers to the Word of life, the Son of God, who was with the Father before His incarnation. John is saying at the beginning of the letter that eternal life is found in Jesus because Jesus is the Son of God who came from the Father, and the Father is the epitome of eternal life. God is eternal life, literally, So God's Son comes bringing the only kind of life that God has, the eternal kind. So if you have the Son of God, Jesus, then you have the life of God, eternal life. So being in Christ, older saint, listen carefully. If you know Jesus, you're caught up into the very life of God right now. You're caught up into a quality and quantity of life that's unlike any other. You're like, my body just hurts all the time. I'm starting every year, I feel like, to feel that pain more and more. We went swimming yesterday, and I was like, oh, I'm just sore from swimming. What's wrong with me? You're like, John, you're only half my age. I know, I should shut up. Isn't it beautiful to know that if you are an older saint, right now you have the very life of God within you? If you have Jesus in you. This is really good news for older people. Who are drawing closer to closer, closer and closer to death. Time has hurried by you. Time has hurried by. And again, again and again, you've found Jesus to be the only safe refuge for you. Again and again, you've believed and you still believe that He's your only refuge, even as the darkness of death approaches. So as you draw nearer and nearer to death, you need to know, older saints, that you're consciously right now already living in eternity because because Jesus is living in you and Jesus is eternal life. So if you're advanced in years, you can rejoice and rest because you know Him who is from from the beginning. You know Jesus. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've left undone. And that, that may be the bigger piece for a lot of older folks. All the things you wish you would have done better seem to occupy your thoughts. But despite all of that, despite all of the things you've done or left undone, you can exhale, just excel, just breathe in the knowledge that you know Jesus and that Jesus lives in you. And because you belong to Him, Death is not the end, but the beginning. It's only a door. Death is only a door for you to step through into eternal life. Now, younger brothers and sisters, you should pray this for your older brothers and sisters. You should pray that they remember that they know Jesus. You should pray that God gives them grace to finish the race of faith to the very end. Still hoping, still trusting, still believing. Me and my sister visited my grandma Cypert before she died. Maybe a week before she died, I can't remember. And she couldn't speak. She couldn't really do anything but just lay there and look at us. And we, I think we read something from the Bible over her. We sang some hymns. I don't remember exactly what we did. But she finished her race in faith. She finished her race in faith. And there was so much pain and so much agony at the end. But when she breathed her last, she stepped from life into life. From life into life. Young men, young women, pray that for your older brothers and sisters. Pray that God would give them faith to stay true to Christ to the they would feel, feel Jesus literally with them. I sometimes wonder, what was Grandma Seifert feeling in that moment? Did she just feel his big strong arms around? I know she did. In the quiet of that nursing home room, hour after hour, what was he saying to her? How was her heart just rejoicing and comforted by that truth? Brothers and sisters, pray that. I would dare say you have an obligation. We have an obligation to pray that for our older brothers and sisters. Because frankly, we wouldn't be in the faith if it weren't for the generation above us who passed the faith on to us. So let's help them finish. You're like, John, we're a young church. We kind of are. But open your church directory. There are some older saints in there that you don't know that you should reach out to, call, text, maybe even write them a note and let them know you're praying for them. Do it. Do it. You're like, I don't know them. I don't care. (laughs) I don't care if you don't know them. Send them some encouragement. Send them something to help them to the end. I know I would want that. I know I, I will want that. And you would too. So to the fathers, he says, you know Jesus. And finally, he addresses the young men of course, young men, young women, young people. And to them, he says first in verse 13, you have overcome the evil one. And then he expands on that in 14, you are strong and the word of God abides in you or lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. The word young men consistently, excuse me, refers to people of lesser years in the gospels and acts. First Timothy 5.1, Paul uses the same term to refer to people similar in age to Timothy. So again, John isn't referring to people of more maturity than children, less maturity than fathers. He's simply referring to younger people. And many of you in this room today fall into that category. You're younger people. You're younger younger people. So I want you to especially note and be encouraged by what John says here to you. He says... That these younger people have overcome the evil one that is the devil satan they've overcome the evil one in the context of this letter where the forces of evil as we'll see are coming against the churches in the form of false teaching it's interesting how the evil one trades in ideas Christians, we should be the most thoughtful people because the evil one trades in ideas. It's not the only thing he's up to. But false teaching is coming upon these churches through these deceptive false teachers. So when he says that these young people have overcome the evil one, in context of the letter, what he means is, he's not like, oh, you know, you were possessed and now you're not possessed by a demon. He's not talking about that. He's saying that they've rejected the evil, false teaching and teachers and remained faithful to the message of the gospel that they'd heard from the beginning. And I love that John expands on this for us in verse 14. He tells us how they were able to do this. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So, if you flip it around a little bit, What John is saying is that these young people have overcome the evil one because they're strong, and they're strong because the Word of God lives in them. You see what he's saying there? Don't miss the connection between their strength and their living in the Word of God. Yes, young people have a certain measure of physical strength that older people don't have. But the strength that he's referring to here has nothing to do with their physique or how many times... They were in the gym the week before. When he says you are strong, what he means is the Word of God lives in you. You are strong because the Word of God lives in you. And therefore you've overcome the evil one. Now, brothers and sisters, we don't have to have three-hour quiet times every morning to grow strong and live in the Word. But if we consistently neglect the Word of God, we can expect to be weakened against the assaults of the evil one, whatever form they take. Now the Word of God here is the message proclaimed and embodied by Jesus Christ, the message proclaimed and embodied by what we call now the Bible. For them it would have been all that is said, all that was taught by Jesus and His apostles. These young men and young women have grown strong in the faith because they stayed close to the message of Jesus. And then this strength allowed them to withstand all the crazy things the false teachers were saying. So young people, you know who you are. Young men, young women. If you're following Jesus today, it's because your faith has made you strong by the Word of God and given you the ability to withstand the assaults of the enemy. Young men, young women, If you're following Jesus, it's because you've been made strong by the Word of God and given the ability to withstand the assaults of the enemy, whatever form they take. And let me just pause and say, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Do you ever thank God for His grace in your life? Praise the Lord for what He's done in your life, young men, young women. And if I could just add as a friend, as a brother, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. There's a tall deck stacked against you. Young men, young women, most of your peers are not following Jesus. We could maybe say that about every age group, but most of your peers probably aren't following Jesus you are actively trying to follow Jesus. Not perfectly, but increasingly year after year. I'm proud of you, brothers and sisters. Look at me. I'm proud of you. I'm super proud of you. This means a lot to me to do this because frankly no one said that to me. And we need someone in our life to say, hey man, I'm proud of you. Right? Not because we need some ego boost. But because, let's be honest, despair fills our hearts. We wonder all the time, are we doing anything right? Am I alone in that? Are we just screwing up left and right? Am I just a complete failure? Oh, I didn't get up early again. I didn't read my Bible. I was late to church. Didn't give enough money. Didn't do that. Like, aren't we always consumed with that? We are, brothers and sisters. You're not a failure. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. Seriously. You're like, John, you don't even know me. That's all right. You're here. You could be sleeping. Amen. But you're here. I'm proud of you. There's so many evil things and ideas and behaviors that surround you, but you've stayed true to the message of the gospel. You've chosen the narrow path that leads to life rather than the broad road that leads to destruction. You've chosen... Some of you have literally chosen Jesus over your family. I'm proud of you. Over friends, over reputation, maybe over job offers. You've given up time and money and effort to follow Jesus. You've decided to live for something bigger than self. You've decided to give your life to Jesus. You come to church on Sunday. You sing songs and pray and Read dusty old creeds and confessions. You open your Bible. You pray with other Christians throughout the week. You choose to refrain from things your friends and classmates and co-workers are doing. Even if it makes you look stupid or too religious or uncultured, you choose to follow Jesus. Not perfectly, but you are choosing to follow Jesus. Praise the Lord. You are strong. The Word of God lives in you. And you have overcome the evil one. I'm not saying, by the way, that this means the evil one will leave you alone now, like you've arrived or something. In fact, the more... Please listen. The more you try to follow Jesus in the years and decades to come, the more He will harass you. If you were no threat to the kingdom of death and darkness, He would leave you alone. But as we band together... Fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, as we band together in the local church... We seek to live in the Word of God together. We'll grow stronger and stronger and stronger year after year after year in the Lord. And we will overcome evil together. And we will see one day when Jesus comes back on a white horse, Revelation says, and with one word, He will fail Satan. we just saying this, remember? One word, Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. We will all witness that. We will literally overcome, watch Jesus overcome evil once and for all. But even now, even now, in the local church, we have a little taste of that. As we grow strong and live in the Word of God together, we start to see Satan's schemes undone and the kingdom of God come in and through our midst. That's number two. What does this text mean? Now, finally, number three. One main application. What does all this mean for us? Well, one of the primary ways evil assaults us today is through shame. Yes, there is false teaching everywhere. We need to, be, need to be aware of it and call it what it is. Jared did some of that this morning in our training class as he taught through what the Bible says about homosexuality. But there's, there's false teaching inside of us that damages our souls on a daily basis. That false teaching is called shame. Guilt is similar, but not the same. Guilt is about our actions. Shame is about our character, our value, our worth, who we are. Who we believe we are. Some have even said that shame is the primary weapon the enemy has against the people of God. You see, Satan can't damn us with guilt, but he can paralyze us with shame. Evil loves to tell us things that aren't true to shame us. This is where the devil's two favorite schemes, deception and accusation, meet to devour our souls. You're like, the devil doesn't talk to me. Oh, yes, he does. (laughs) What lies does evil routinely whisper in your ear? You're incompetent. You're not working hard enough. You're a fraud. You're not pretty enough. You're too tall. You're too short. You're too uh, too old. You're too young. You're too skinny. You're overweight. You're dumb. You're too sensitive. You're you're too emotional. You're a bad mom. You'll never get over that addiction. Your life is pointless. No one cares about you. No one sees you. No one will ever want to marry you. You can never be used by God again after that. You're a complete failure. Have you ever heard any of that? How old are those accusations? There was a moment when evil first said that to you, first accused you of those things, most likely a moment of pain and heartache. The the core accusations that plague us in our day-to-day lives most likely have their origins in the heartache of some of the core stories of woundedness in our lives. In other words, evil loves to prey on our pain, to kick us when we're down, to take what has been done against us or what we have done ourselves and twist it all around and make us feel like that is who we are. And if he he can kick us hard enough, we'll stay down. So we need to become aware of these accusations that they are indeed the voice of evil. We'll feel like they arise from our own heart. Because they just feel like they're part of us and they've always been there. We don't realize that evil has a voice that speaks to us regularly. We'll think that these truths are in our hearts and have always been in our hearts and that these things are indisputably and irreversibly true about us. So again, what lies does evil routinely speak into your life? What lies does evil routinely whisper in your ear? What lies are you listening to? And how long have you been hearing those things? The evil one knows he can't damn us with guilt. Jesus bore our guilt, but he can paralyze us with shame. The antidote to shame is verse 14. The word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. The gospel says that our value isn't based on performance. Who we are, what we've done, what we've not done, how we look, how we don't look. The gospel says that God doesn't accept us based on our performance at all, but based on Jesus's performance. The gospel says that Jesus, that that God doesn't look at us and think, you know, yeah, he's not this enough or that enough, she's not this enough or that enough. Therefore, yeah, it's gonna be a tough sell to love that one. That is not the gospel at all. The gospel says, I accept you based on nothing you've done, nothing you are, not remotely how you look or act or feel. I accept you only because of Jesus, someone totally outside of yourself. God never connects value to performance. Yes, of course we're supposed to obey God, but we don't obey God to gain value through performance. We obey because we've been declared valuable despite our performance. Shame says, you're only as valuable as your performance. You have to perform well to be accepted, to have any value. Y'all ever think that? Just me? Perform well, accepted. Perform poorly, poorly, not accepted. But the gospel says you're valuable despite your performance. You haven't performed well at all, in fact, but you're still accepted. This is amazing. You haven't performed well. And I accept you anyways, God says, because you're purchased by the blood of my son. You're my son. You're my daughter. You're my child. Get over here and stop worrying about how you look and what you've done, what you haven't done. Let me love you. Let my voice overpower the voice of shame. The lies and accusation of the evil one that fill your heart and head are meant to shame you so that you won't feel loved and accepted and useful to God even though you are. One simple way to combat these lies is to pray this prayer often. God, please help me to believe the things about me that you believe about me. God, please help me to believe the things about me that you believe about me. God, please help me believe the things about me that you believe about me. And then, because God calls us into community, not into isolation, talk to your brothers and sisters about the specific lies you struggle with, you are prone to believe, the shame that you feel. Darkness grows in solitude. But darkness also dies in the light. So, John has written to these churches to remind them of several things that are irreversibly true about them forgiveness of sins. They know the Father, they know the Son, they've overcome the evil one. They have these blessings as the children of God. This is how John would describe a Christian forgiven, knows God knows the Son, has overcome evil, has the Word of God living inside of them. And these are the kinds of truths that God wants us to take and carry with us, to think about, to talk about with others, so that He might start to, to destroy the shame that suffocates our souls. True Christians are encouraged by the truth And I might add, true Christians are set free from shame through the truth of the gospel. So think about it. Pray about it. Talk to others about it often. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we have covered a lot of ground here today. Pray that you would sift... Our hearts and minds, just like you did, Peter, sift us. Shake out the things that we don't need right now and help us to take with us the things that we do. As, as individuals and families and as a church, we pray that the voice of God would overcome the voice of evil and the voice of shame in our hearts and minds. And that we would be strong because we know the Father because we know Him who is from the beginning, because our sins are forgiven, and because we've overcome the evil one. Plant these truths deep inside of us, we ask, by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.